We're continuing our series this morning through the book of Genesis, and particularly in this series that I've entitled, Joseph from a Pit to a Palace. We are following Moses' account in the book of Genesis of Joseph's unlikely journey from being in a pit, sold into slavery, until ultimately he's second in charge of the powerful Egypt. And what we're going to see today is as we continue the series, which will, uh, Lord willing, conclude the second week in December as we're at the end of chapter 50, I'm preaching a message this morning I've already told you I've entitled simply Reconciled. Reconciled. In another work of Moses, two books from here, the book of Numbers, we find a stark warning regarding the justice of God. The Bible says this in Numbers 32. Be sure your sin will find you out. In other words, you may think you've gotten away with something. You may be led to believe that this particular transgression that you've committed, there's no evidence, it's been covered up, it's been long forgotten. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. There is nothing that has been hidden that will not one day be revealed. Be sure your sin will find you out. Three teenage boys found out this truth in a startling way a few years ago, and of all places, Nova Scotia. Early one summer morning, these three boys left their home together, and they decided to go out on this escapade. So they stole a pontoon boat that was docked on the river where they lived. And they took this boat on a joyride. As they're going downstream, one of the boys discovers there's a stash of liquor on board. So they start guzzling the liquor down as they're driving this pontoon boat. In their semi-inebriated state, they see on the shore this kind of campground. And so they pull in to where the campground is. They disembark from the boat. and They go there and they start rummaging through that camp. They steal some blankets and pillows and stereo equipment and get back on board and head back downstream. After they've traveled a little bit further downstream and they've had the, about the full of their escapade, they beach this pontoon boat on the shore and they have another brilliant idea, as teenagers often do together in groups, they say, let's burn all of our, the evidence of this escapade. So they set the boat on fire, the blankets on fire, and all the evidence of their crimes. Unfortunately, what they failed to realize is that they had not docked the boat on the bank of the river, the mainland. They had docked the boat on an island in the middle of the river. Someone who saw the burning boat called the authorities. They showed up, and there they were, these three guilty teenagers with all the evidence of their crimes and no way to escape. They found out real quickly, Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. Now, for the three boys, it was only a few hours. For these ten brothers of Joseph who threw him in a pit to leave him for dead, who sold him into slavery for a paltry 20 pieces of silver, it took over 20 years. But God is still God. You will reap what you sow. And over the past few weeks, if we, as we have followed the interaction between Joseph in an unrecognizable Egyptian state to these 10 brothers of his, it's been interesting to see how God has brought them face to face again and again with their own guilt, with their own culpability, with their own sin. And through this process, what God is doing in their heart is bringing them to full remorse and repentance. 
in an attempt, in an effort to bring about reconciliation. And in a powerfully captivating way in the passage before us today, we will see the full reconciliation of these brothers together. They go from familial alienation to brotherly reconciliation. But beyond the human reconciliation that happens in the passage before us, what's so awesome about this passage and the course of events is that as Joseph once again tests them to determine the genuineness of their faith, their reconciliation with Joseph really serves as something like a metaphor of every believer's reconciliation with God. How anyone, friend, anyone can go from hostility and alienation with God to reconciliation with him. In fact, you may be here this morning and you may admit privately, personally, I don't know that I've ever been this far from God. You can look back and see there are times in your lives and seasons where you have, have been pursuing the Lord, where you've been trusting in him, where you've enjoyed fellowship with Jesus, but now that is broken. If that in any way describes you, this passage is for you. There's going to be six steps we're going to see that God takes these boys, these brothers through to experience reconciliation with their brother Joseph. And in the same way, these six things, we can see how we can experience reconciliation with God. Our focal passage is all of chapter 44 and half of chapter 45, 49 verses total. We're not going to read all of it up front, but we'll read it as we go through the six points of the message this morning. We're going to read the first 12 verses up front as we see how Joseph administers to the brothers yet another test of their genuineness and their authenticity as they show repentance for their sins, as they're preparing now to take the 500-mile journey back to Canaan from Egypt with their donkeys loaded down with grain and all the brothers together. Let's begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 44. Then he commanded, that's Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. He said, let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Oh, the plot thickens, doesn't it? 
here Joseph has treated his brothers, first of all, with this magnificent feast in his home as they've laughed together, enjoyed together, and drunk together, and made merry together. And now, as they depart his palace with all the food that they have, here is another test from their brother. He gave them a small test in the meal, if you'll remember, by giving Benjamin, the youngest, the favorite son of Jacob, five times the portions he'd given the other brothers. But there were no cries of unfairness from the 10 brothers who threw him in the pit. They passed that test with flying colors. Now here's another test. How will they respond? How will they respond to this favored brother being implicated in a crime for stealing the Egyptian ruler's silver cup? We read how the steward, when he overtook the brothers, as Joseph had directed them, he, he accuses them of stealing the cup and repaying the good that Joseph had done towards them with this evil. And as you might expect, the brothers, they protest. They say, no, they defend themselves profusely. We could never do such a thing. In fact, they even make a logical argument. How in the world could we, who brought this money back to you that we found in our sacks when we got back home, why would we steal something else if we brought the money back? That doesn't make much sense. Robbers don't do that. This sounds like a foolproof argument until you stop to consider what these men had been like all their lives. True, they may have been innocent of this particular crime, but they were not innocent of sin in general. These brothers were involved in multiple disgraceful acts, not just to their brother Joseph, but they were guilty of sexual sin. They were guilty of incest. They were guilty of even mass murder and genocide. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been falsely accused of something you didn't do? What was your knee-jerk reaction? I remember, as I was thinking about this, how in a former life, I used to speed a little bit when I drove. I mean, it's been almost 10 years since I've been pulled over by a police officer. I have a little less lead in my foot than I used to have. And every time I've been pulled over by a police officer, a long time ago, And they came up to me and they say, I I clocked you doing X number of miles per hour. What's my immediate reaction? Oh, there's no way I was going that fast. There must be something wrong with your radar gun. When's the last time you had that thing calibrated, huh? Never mind the fact of how many times I had exceeded the speed limit at exactly the amount they could accuse me of many, 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 many times without ever being pulled over. Oh, I may be not guilty of exactly what you're accusing me of here, but there have been thousands of times I've been guilty of other things. That's what's happening here. If you've ever been falsely accused of something, perhaps you responded with shock and even some personal offense. Instead, maybe we should say to ourselves, boy, I'm sure glad they don't know of all the things I have done. They hadn't stolen Joseph's cup from him, but they had stolen Joseph's life. They were guilty. Oh, we'd never do anything like that. The audacity. You see, these brothers' whole lives for over 20 years have been lived over under a cloak of deception. They have been telling this lie to themselves so much so they may have even believed it. All Joseph was destroyed by wild animals. They've been telling this lie to their father. Most importantly, they've been lying against God. So following this accusation, they make a very rash vow. We're so certain we're not guilty of this crime Whoever you find with the cup, he's going to die, and the rest of us will be your 
slaves. And what does the steward say? He backs it up and says, no, no, no. You'll all get to go free. Just the one who I find the cup with, he's going to be the slave. So they commence the search, bag to bag, starting with the oldest and heading down to the youngest. Now, the steward knew full well where the cup was. Why did he start with Benjamin? It's building this anticipation, right? And so this shock factor, they open up Benjamin's bag and they pull out and it's glistening in the sun. Joseph's silver cup, the very same cup they saw him drinking at in the feast the day before. It's in Benjamin's bag. This is like a horrible nightmare. Things have been going so well. They had this incredible meal with a gracious ruler. Their donkeys were loaded to capacity with grain. They were heading back home to their father, Jacob, not only with their brother, Benjamin, but their brother, Simeon, who had been set free from prison. And now it all comes crashing down on them. The only remaining son of their father, Jacob, with his beloved bride, Rachel, has been accused of theft, and the punishment has already been set. He's going to be a slave. Do you see what Joseph is doing here? He's setting up the exact same scenario he was in two decades earlier. He, is, he was led to Egypt as a slave, as the beloved favored son of Jacob. And now he set up a scenario where the only remaining beloved son of Jacob, the favored son, will be led away as a slave to Egypt. The very same road that Joseph traveled into slavery is the same road they're on that their brother Benjamin's about to be headed into slavery. How will they respond? This is the test. Will they turn their backs on the favored son and head back home and tell their father the bad news? Or will they cling to their brother? This is the test. And what this test is really intended to do in their lives is to drive them to a point of reconciliation. And there's, again, six things I want us to see. The first one is this. Number one, to be reconciled to God, you must have the remorse over sin. The remorse over sin. It would be, when it became clear to all the brothers that this cup was in Benjamin's sack, that he would, in fact, become a slave in Egypt, notice how they responded in verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. The tearing of the clothes is a sign of remorse, a sign of loss, a sign of guilt and mourning over a deep and tragic loss. Instead of them going free and heading back home to Canaan, they actually, every one of them, the text says, every man loaded their donkey. They're overwhelmed with grief and remorse, and they're, they're seemingly speechless. And you can imagine them riding on, this, on their donkeys back into town. They can't even speak. They're so overwhelmed. But they have not abandoned the favored son, Benjamin, as they had abandoned the favored son, Joseph. They don't follow the steward's suggestion. Just he'll be a slave. The rest of you can go free. No, they follow and are led away with their brother, now, if you'll remember, when Joseph was sold into slavery back in chapter 37, there's only one person who rent his clothes, who tore his clothes, and that was his father, Jacob. But here, all of them share in the remorse over this sin. Let me ask you something. Have you ever been this remorseful over sin? Have you ever wept, even 
torn your clothes? Have you ever been grieved to the core for your transgressions you've committed against a holy God? You know, it's so easy for us to, when we consider our own shortcomings, to justify ourselves by comparing ourselves with others. Yeah, yeah, I've done some stuff. Yeah, I may speed on occasion, but at least I've never done that. You'll never mourn and be driven to remorse over your sin if you keep comparing yourself with others and don't compare yourself with the holy God. This is the first step towards reconciliation with God, and that is to have this deep, personal remorse over your own sin. Every one of them tore their clothes in grief. You've got to own it. Here's the second thing. You see the repentance from self. They demonstrate a repentance, a turning from their own self, their own pride, their own allegiances. Let's pick up our reading in verse 14 and see what happens next. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? Watch this. God has found out the guilt of your plural servants. Behold, we are my Lord, Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. What I love about this, first, this passage first is, is in a great economy of words, Moses says of Joseph, he was still there. He was still there. Friend, you've turned your back on God. He's still there. If you've walked away from relationship and fellowship with God, he is still there. He's waiting for you to fall before him and admit your guilt. Even though Joseph is the judge of their lives and has the power to let them live or die, he doesn't utterly destroy them. Notice again what verse 16 says when Judas, as the spokesman of the group, speaks up. He says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. They all admit we are complicit in the guilt. They all share in the blame. They're not offering up young, favored Benjamin as the scapegoat, but they come clean, each one of them, individually and collectively. They public, publicly confess that guilt. The, the text says they fell before them. God is, step by step, moment by moment, bringing them to greater, deeper Remorse and repentance. Their whole body language communicates their understanding of this truth. I don't want you to miss this timely application. God will, in an act of mercy and grace, allow affliction and hardship and difficulty to come into our lives that may even appear on the surface. Oh, that's unfair. This is inequitable but yet it is his means to move his people to repentance. There are so many questions with Christians today about what's happening in the world, what's swirling around in our country 
as it seems to be careening out of control. And I would simply ask this. Is God still on his throne? Is God still ruling and reigning? Could it be that all that's happening around us is God's means, even though it seems unjust, unfair, stolen an election, could it be that God is moving his people to repentance? Could it be that God is bringing us to a posture of being flat before his face where we cry out to him? Revival of the church in America does not happen as we stand in the ballot box. It happens when we fall in the prayer closet. This is what brings revival in the church. There's no explaining away what's been done here to the brothers. It's unfair. No kind of justification for it. So they just fall upon the mercy of the ruler and they confess openly their personal guilt. God, the God your steward spoke of, the God that came off your lips when you said, God be gracious to you, my son, to Benjamin, this same God, we're guilty before him this remorse over their sin, a repentance of their self. But notice this third step towards reconciliation. We see the beauty of the New Testament truths come to light here, and that is the reliance on a substitute. There's going to be a reliance on a substitute to take the punishment for their guilt. Notice as we continue reading in verse 17. We'll read the rest of chapter 44. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Another test. Verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anchor burn against your servant, for you're like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. So we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, and when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to men, him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then... As his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers for now for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me I fear to see that e the evil that would find my father 
In this speech of Judah, he mentions his father 15 times. A father who over 20 years earlier, he did not mind at all deceiving and putting forth fake evidence of a brutal killing of Joseph. A father who 15 years earlier, he didn't mind going and having sex with his concubine that he might usurp, Judah did, his father's authority in the family. This same Judah mentions his father lovingly and is pleading for mercy on the basis of the well-being of his father. And then what does Judah do? He puts himself forward as a substitute to take the penalty and the punishment for Benjamin's alleged crime of stealing the cup. This is the first time in the Bible when one person puts himself forward as a substitute penalty bearer for another. Interestingly, in the course of Judah's speech, Joseph is learning some valuable information, information he didn't know before. And I'm just imagine as Joseph is listening, he's on pins and needles learning these things. As first, Judah speaks to him in Hebrew, and then a translator translates it into Egyptian. He gets to hear the speech twice. And he's hearing that when the report was made that Joseph had been torn to pieces, that his father let out a loud cry. He didn't know that before. He didn't know any information about his father weeping and mourning for his death. He's now hanging on every word of Judah's speech. And then as Judah puts himself forward as a substitute in exchange for the punishment to be dealt upon Benjamin, it's obviously a beautiful type of the way anyone can be reconciled to God. It is only by trusting in the substitution of Jesus Christ on our behalf that Jesus Christ, the righteous, has put himself forward. I find it interesting that Judah did not say, oh, fair-minded king, can't you just let bygones be bygones? I mean, you got the cup back. I mean, all, all's good now. It's all settled. There have been on several occasions when I've been in a gospel conversation with someone, and I'll ask the familiar question, if you were to stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And so many times I've heard the response, well, he's a forgiving God. He'll just forgive me. With no concern about the grave aspect of their sin, seemingly oblivious to the fact that God is not just a loving, forgiving God. He is a righteous, just God who must punish sin. Judah understood this irrevocable law, that guilt must be paid in full. And so he says, I will be the substitute. And in the same way, the greater Judah in the courtroom of your own conscience that is guilty before God, Jesus steps forward, the righteous, the not guilty, and says, I will be the substitute for the boy. I will be a substitute for the girl. I will take the hell they deserve. Let me ask you something. Have you ever co-signed for a loan with someone? When Amy and I first bought our first home in South Georgia, my dad co-signed for us that we could have the loan so we didn't have the credit. I've co-signed for loans with my children. Why? Well, because I love them, because they love me, I think. And now if my children were abusive towards their parents, were hostile, they on every turn hurled insults towards us, when I co-sign a loan, I'm saying, I'll take responsibility for the debt if this knucklehead defaults, right? Right? Would I be as willing 
to co-sign for a loan if my children treated me that way? By the way, they don't. (laughs) Here's what's so amazing about the gospel. Christ stepped forward as the co-signer, no, the co-signer, pay the full debt, not for people who were loving him, but people who were hostile towards him. The Bible says in Romans 8 that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The greatest hostility. We would have been there saying, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus signs the debt. He pays the loan in full. I love the way Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became our substitute, our surety. He became sin so that he could give us full and free forgiveness, full and free fellowship, full and free reconciliation with God. So once we demonstrate remorse over our sin, once we have repentance from our selfishness and our pursuits, and once we trust in the substitute of another taking the penalty in our place, look at this fourth glorious reality of reconciliation that is the revelation of the Savior. The revelation of the Savior. These brothers of Joseph would come to know and experience complete restoration and reconciliation. And now at the beginning of chapter 45, the identity of their Savior is revealed. There's a revelation of the king to their hearts and their minds. This Egyptian ruler they've known as Zaphnath Paneah, he spoke in Egyptian only to them, using a translator. Remarkably, he's about to speak in their native tongue. Notice what happens beginning in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out for me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And I said, I am, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph now knows fully their remorse and their repentance is complete. And so he reveals himself. The guilt of their former sins has been removed by a substitute. And so Joseph, in in an incredible moment of emotion, sends out his entire court. I think there may not be a more dramatic scene in all the Bible than this scene right here. These frightened, terrified, trembling men who are lying flat on their faces before this harsh ruler. What is going on? He sends everybody else out except us. Now we're alone in here with him. And then he starts weeping uncontrollably. I think Joseph sent everyone out for a couple of reasons. One, he wanted to maintain at least the appearance of authority and rule, and so he removes his underlings from the room. 
But I think even more importantly, he did not want to expose his brothers to any undue embarrassment or shame. Why? Because love covers a multitude of sins. He wanted to be able to comfort his brothers in an unhindered way without strangers looking on. And again, verse 2, it says, he wept aloud. This is the strongest Hebrew word for crying. He's convulsing with sobs and tears, so much so that everybody outside could hear it. And I just imagine, again, these brothers looking at each other. Why is he crying? What's wrong with this guy? But the reason behind his uncontrollable weeping would become crystal clear in their minds when he said those three words in Hebrew, I am Joseph. These brothers had never mentioned Joseph by name in his presence. They've only referred to him as our brother, our father's other son. But now the name Joseph, a name they likely haven't spoken in 20 years, comes off the lips of this king. And Joseph asks them a question. Is my father still alive? Now, they had reported on their father on multiple occasions. Your servant, our father, is doing well. He's alive. He's in his old age. He's doing great. Did he not believe him? Why would Joseph ask this question? I believe Joseph asked this question. Is my father alive in order to identify with them relationally? Men, we are family. We are reconciled. We are brother. The ruler and the king in Egypt condescends to these Hebrew Semites. We have the same father. Of course, you'd have to be blind to not see how all this is pointing to Jesus. As we become reconciled to God, as we repent and and trust in the substitution and the work of Christ, Jesus reveals himself to us amazingly, not just as our king, not just as our ruler, not just as our Lord, as our brother. Are you kidding me? If you'll remember in Matthew chapter 28, the first people to have an appearance of the resurrected Christ was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. And when they saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, three days dead, what did Jesus say to them? Go back and tell, not my deserting disciples. Go back and tell, not my betraying so-called friends. Look at Matthew 28, verse 10. He says, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Friend, if you're an adopted child of God, Jesus, the king of the universe, identifies you as brother. You have the same heavenly father. There's a familial connection. This is an unbelievable truth. We're not just forgiven. We're not just released from the debt. We're brought in as family. Now, these brothers are already emotionally drained from this whole ordeal They've gone through the whole situation with the stolen cup, the accusation of Benjamin. They're completely dumbfounded. And verse 3 says, His brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. They can't speak. You ever been there before? You're so amazed. You're just like, oh, I've got nothing to say. 
The men are absolutely shocked into silence. And how does Joseph respond to their shock and embarrassment and silence? Look again at verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. Oh, what a gracious invitation. Once their repentance has been proven, proven true, come near to me, please. Is this not a picture of Jesus, the ruler of the universe who issues to us, the ones who have abused him and hurled insults at him with our disobedient lives? Jesus issues the kind invitation, come near to me, please. And what was the response? The text simply says, they came near. What a portrayal of reconciliation. You know, these brothers had kept their distance from Joseph out of respect and reverence for his position and his power, and now they had fallen before Joseph out of their fear and trembling and terror, but now they came near. The one who they left for dead. But then as Joseph continues to communicate to them in their silence, he reveals some tremendously profound theological truths. Truths they have probably forgotten, but truths that are intended to carry them even through the next five years of famine. Intended to carry them through whatever may come their way. He communicates to them about, number five, the remnant of survivors. Let me remind you again of the context of the book of Genesis. Genesis was written again by Moses some 400 years after the events surrounding Joseph. It was written to the wandering Hebrews, a couple of million of them, who were wandering around in the wilderness after they were delivered from Egyptian slavery. That's the audience that Genesis was written to. And Moses is writing to them specifically about the life of Joseph to remind them that the covenant promises of God shall not fail. They are trustworthy and they are true. So look how Joseph reminds them of these covenant promises here in verses 5 through 8. He says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many, what, survivors. Why? Verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of, G of Egypt. Now, he does remind his brothers, yeah, you sold me here. Let's not forget that. You're the reason I'm here. But that was the secondary causation. The primary causation of Joseph being in Egypt is the purpose of God. That's why he was there. He clearly says that. He was there because of God's providential purposes. And what's the providential purposes? He says, to preserve your lives. But not only your lives, your descendants, to preserve from you a remnant of survivors. 
Friends, these brothers had become so distracted by their circumstances, so distracted by their present life experiences, they had been so distracted by the economic and the political upheaval in the world in which they lived, they had completely lost sight of the big picture. They had forgotten. God is sovereign. God is in control. God is up to something so much bigger than just the here and now. Now, I know that can never happen to us, right? We could never become distracted by our present life situation, could we? We could never become so consumed and preoccupied by some political upheaval that we would forget God's in charge. That would never happen to us, right? Surely we would never forget that God is sovereign, he's ruling, he's reigning, and he will accomplish all of his good pleasure. And don't miss this, friends. God is preserving right here a remnant of survivors who will worship him in truth. And friend, today in 2020, oh, we hate to say that year, 2020. Friends, God is providing a remnant of survivors who will see King Jesus rule over this planet. Whatever hardship or loss or disappointment we may endure, it is nothing compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Joseph reminds his brothers of this truth. All this hardship, all this difficulty, God was doing it to preserve a remnant of survivors from whom a nation would come, but ultimately from whom a great redeemer would come. And that leads to the sixth and final thing I want us to consider about reconciliation, and that is the responsibility of the sons. (laughs) Joseph then says, you've got a responsibility, boys. He gives them, as it were, a great commission. Look at it with me in verse 9 to verse 13. He says, hurry up and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son, Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. For nearly two and a half decades, Joseph has not seen his father For two and a half decades, their father has believed the lie that Joseph is no more, that he's been killed, that he was attacked by wild beasts. And Joseph now says, after 25 some odd years, hurry up. It's time to get to work. Go now and give this message to my father. And is this not the same responsibility we have been given? Hurry up. Go. Tell of the great salvation. Tell of the work that has been accomplished. Tell of the promises of the sovereign. This is, in fact, what Paul communicated in 2 Corinthians 5. We saw earlier 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be reconciled to God. But look at the context of 2 Corinthians 5. It's exactly what we see here in Genesis 44 and 45. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, what? The ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us 
the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Reconciliation with God fuels a responsibility to proclaim reconciliation to the world. When we understand our own forgiveness, we're driven to proclaim the gospel of peace that brings peace between God and man, that brings peace between man and man. This is the message we've been given. And as this section concludes in verses 14 and 15, we see just what full and complete reconciliation looks like. Look at verse 14 and 15. Then he, Joseph, fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. (laughs) Joseph is the one who initiates this reconciliation. He's the one who is the pursuer here. And after two and a half decades of estrangement, it is now finally and fully ended. He, he starts with the youngest brother, Benjamin. Of course, he's going to start there. He falls upon Benjamin. He's just weeping, kissing his brother. And then I imagine he goes and he finds the oldest after Benjamin to Reuben. He embraces Reuben. And they know the history. They know the past. They know all that they've gone through. And he doesn't skip a single brother. Simeon, Levi, come here, boys. Judah, Dan, Naphtali, reconciled. Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, kisses and weeping and kisses and weeping. Full reconciliation. Every brother, regardless of how deep and dark their sin was against Joseph, are now fully reconciled. And friend, it doesn't matter how deep and how dark your sin is against Jesus. You can be fully and completely reconciled. There is a gracious invitation that is even going out today. Come near to me, please. Come near to me, please. How will you respond to the one that gave his life as a substitute for your crimes? How will you respond to the one that took the penalty in your place? Will you, as these brothers did, come near to him? Or will you continue to walk in hostility towards a gracious God? Have you been reconciled to God? That leads to my last thought. When there is full and final reconciliation with God, all guilt is gone and joy-filled fellowship is restored.